Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 34th program in this series. I'm going to start in John chapter 7, verse 37. John chapter 7, verse 37 when it was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus was in Jerusalem, and in verse 37 it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We don't know exactly where Jesus was when he said this. Given the placement of verse 37, as it's placed in chapter 7, it's likely that he was at the temple. In the previous verses, it speaks of Jesus being at the temple, and he was speaking to the people in the middle of the feast, on a day that was in the middle of this eight-day festival. And considering how verse 37 flows with the rest of the chapter, it's reasonable to suggest that Jesus was at the temple when he said this. If he was not at the temple, he could have been anywhere, of course. Wherever he was, he would definitely want to pick a place where there were a lot of people and the kinds of people who he wanted to hear him say this. I personally think that the temple would have been the most appropriate place, but it doesn't explicitly state that that is where he was. Now, there were a lot of things that were going on during the Feast of Tabernacles. There were a lot of ceremonies that took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. I'll spend some time talking about these ceremonies in John chapter 9 when I speak about the healing of the man who was born blind. But for now, I would like to mention that one of the ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles was for the priests to go down to the Pool of Siloam every day and bring some water from the Pool of Siloam and walk all the way up to the temple compound and pour out the water before the altar. This was one of the ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles, and there was a distinctive path that the priests would walk through in order to go down to the pool, collect some water, and bring it back up, and pour it out before the altar. And this was considered to be living water. This was one of the ceremonies, and there were a lot of people who would set up their tabernacles along this path just so they could be closer to this procession of priests that would go up and down every day for this ceremony. If Jesus was at the temple, a good time to say something like this would be the time when the priests were pouring out the water before the altar. It's my opinion that that would have been the best time for Jesus to state this because the people would be thinking about 
the living water and the water that the priests collected. So when Jesus said this, the people who heard him would make a connection. They would make some kind of a connection between the living water that was poured out before the altar every day and what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying was that he was offering something that was different than what was being offered by the Levitical priesthood. He was making it clear. He was making it public. And he said it in a way that enough people would hear him speak and they would tell others. And because the entire nation of Israel was expected to be there in Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, word would have gotten out and most everyone would know that this is something that Jesus said. But he certainly was not speaking about regular water, the kind of water that they were transporting from the Pool of Siloam to the temple and then poured out before the altar. He wasn't speaking of water itself. He was using these words to describe something else. He used these words as an abstraction to describe something different. The people had a definition for living water. They had a belief concerning living water. They could make an association with the phrase living water, especially during the Feast of Tabernacles. But Jesus used that phrase in order to describe something new, to tell them about something else. And this living water that he speaks of is something that will come out of us, come out of our hearts which is a way of saying that this is going to be a spiritual experience, not a physical experience, a physical water coming out of our hearts. It's going to be a spiritual experience. And in verse 39, John describes this. He says, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He proclaims the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. That's what he proclaims on the last day of this festival in Jerusalem. He proclaims that he is the one who will give to anyone who asks. He is the one who will give the Holy Spirit. That is who he is. If a person will believe in Jesus, they will receive what he has to offer, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, to believe in Jesus means a lot. It means that you know who he is. You have the correct Jesus. You know about the problems that he came to solve. You know the message that he gave concerning forgiveness, freedom from the law, those kinds of things. The new covenant, the restoration of the Holy Spirit, there is a lot in the package of believing in Jesus. And so for those who will believe in him in terms of who he really is, those are the people who he will ensure are the recipients of the Holy Spirit. He will give those people the spirit of life, the Holy Spirit of God, and he will be able to discern who believes in him in the way that he wants a person to believe in him. And so we don't have to evaluate each other and pass judgment against each other to determine whether or not our friends, our brethren, believe in the same Jesus that we believe in. Our God, 
will be sure to distinguish between those who believe in him legitimately and those who don't. And so that really doesn't need to be our concern. But in the midst of this, it is our role to be as true as we can to our understanding of who Jesus is and communicate that to others as best as we are able. Now, what is so significant about the giving of the Holy Spirit? Well, this is the solution to the problem between man and God. When God created humanity, he created Adam and Eve to be spiritually alive. They were spiritually alive because he breathed within them the breath of life, which is a unique construction of words that describes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God was breathed within humanity and they were spiritually alive. God gave the law that if they ate from the wrong tree in the Garden of Eden, they would surely die. Sure enough, they ate from the wrong tree and they died. Death is the absence of life. And in this case, it is the absence of the life of God, the absence of the Holy Spirit. And so when God created humanity, he created humanity with his spirit within them, with the Holy Spirit within them. That was part of his creation. But because of the rejection of Adam and Eve, he withdrew himself from within them. He withdrew his spirit from within them, and they became spiritually dead. So there were two problems that needed to be solved in this circumstance. The first problem was, of course, the sin problem. There needed to be a solution to the sin that has now entered into the world, the rejection of God, not believing God, as an example, thinking that he was telling a lie concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is sin that is now a part of the world, and there will have to be a resolution for sin. But in addition to that, there's going to have to be a resolution for the spiritual death of humanity. Somehow, in some way, there will need to be a restoration of the Holy Spirit that was lost in Adam. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. He came to die for the sins of the world in order to resolve the sin issue between God and humanity, to do it once and for all, execute forgiveness for all sin, and bring it to an end. He would do that so that when the Holy Spirit is restored to someone who wants to receive the Holy Spirit, there would be no sin left unforgiven that would cause the Holy Spirit to depart from a person ever again. For Adam and Eve, it was just eating from the wrong tree. And so it could certainly be anything. It could be any sin. Any sin, the wages of sin is death. So the only solution that would enable the Holy Spirit to remain within a person once they receive the Holy Spirit would be a complete resolution to all sin to the extent where God would no longer relate to us on the basis of our sin. It would be totally forgiven. In that way, the Holy Spirit would remain within a person, they would be made spiritually alive, and this life would never leave them. We would remain alive spiritually, eternally, because there is nothing that can cause the Holy Spirit to depart. Therefore, the life that we will have 
will be an everlasting life, an eternal life, a life that we can experience right now and today, a relationship with our God through His Spirit within us. And this relationship will continue after we physically die because our spirit and soul have been made alive through the presence of the life of God connected with it. That is what John was referring to in verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus first had to resolve the sin issue and he did that through the crucifixion. Then he rose from the dead and through his resurrection from the dead, he then sent the spirit, the same spirit that rose him from the dead was what he sent to us and it would be the same spirit that would raise us from the dead. Then we would be saved. So he proclaimed the gospel. He spoke about the gospel, but not just in the context of eternal life, but also for our life now, for our lives that we live before we physically die. Out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of the Holy Spirit. This is an abstraction to say that what we receive from God will be reflected off of us, within and through us, in such a way that we will interact with the world that we are a part of. And the world will experience, those who we encounter will experience our God living within and through us. And in this way, there is a partial restoration of what God intended when he first created humanity to be an image of him. We will once again be a reflection, an image in the sense of a reflection, an image of God, certainly not like the original creation, similar to it, just enough so that there can be an acknowledgement by us and by others that there is something that is coming out of us that is not us, but truly is an expression of the living God living within and through us. And the experience of that is an individual experience for every one of his children, everyone who is born again as a child of God by the Spirit of God will have a unique experience in their lives and the way that they interact with the world and the way that God interacts with the world through them will be unique for each person. It will be a living experience, a living experience that we can have right now and today. And in that way, we can have an understanding of how we are a participant in the things that God is doing. And he also can be a participant in the things that we are doing. It becomes a personal, mutual, relational experience, a personal relationship that we can have with our God and he can have with us, one that we have with each other and together. Jesus proclaims this right here in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. Moving forward into verse 40, therefore many from the crowd, 
when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is a prophet. And you would hope that maybe they would say something a little bit more profound than that. But it's a start. You know, it's a start as long as we are moving forward, as long as we are moving in a positive direction, great things can come. In verse 41, others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? Well, it turns out that Jesus did come from Bethlehem. They just needed to do a little bit more research in order to find out that he was born in Bethlehem. But later in his life, he moved to Galilee. In verse 43, so there was a division among the people because of him. Because of Jesus, there was a division. Some of the people believed him and other people did not. That was their choice. This is a good thing for people, for us, to have the ability to decide, for us to be able to choose. And what does our God get out of this? He gets a group of people who believe in him because they want to. A group of people who will have a relationship with him because they want to. And those who don't want to, won't. And it doesn't matter how many people, just as long as there are some. If there are some, then he has achieved great success concerning his efforts. Certainly it would be nice if there were many, many more than some, but whoever he gets will have a relationship with him on the basis of truth, on the basis of his grace, on the basis of his forgiveness, on the basis of the new covenant that God defines. He will define the criteria by which a person can be saved. He is the one who defines the relationship that he's willing to have with us. And so for this to work, he's going to have to find those people who are willing to surrender to him on this basis. And those who are not willing will not be a part of his life. Now, of those who rejected him, it says in verse 44, now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? Now, this is in reference to what I described in the previous program concerning verse 30 and 32. Now, in verse 30 and 32, to me, there is a good indication that this was a different day than the last day of the feast. And I made a connection between verse 30 and 32 and these verses verses 43 and following, and I did that intentionally because this would be the expected result, even though in verses 44 and 45 we have a description of what happens after the officers go to see Jesus to perhaps arrest him. So verses 45, it's verses 45 down, do not necessarily correlate exactly to verses 30 and 32, but I do believe that the result would have been the same, which is why I referred to these verses in the previous program. But in this case, John put this chronologically in the order of the last day of the feast, again in verse 43, so there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, 
who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. And I explained this in the previous message, that Jesus did not say anything that would justify him being arrested. That would have been the case during the middle of the feast. It would also be the case here on the last day of the feast. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Now, in verse 48, for them to say this, to say that if we don't believe in him, then he is definitely a liar. For them to say this is inappropriate. They have to consider the possibility that they do not know the truth. But they are taking the position that they are the rulers. They are the people in charge. Therefore, by definition, they are right about everything. Certainly, there is no one who's going to put them on trial from their perspective. They are the ones who have the ultimate authority. So they are the ones who decide what is true and what isn't true, what is to be believed and what is not to be believed. And this, of course, is totally inappropriate. But that's the position that they took. And there are many people who find themselves in positions of authority or great influence, and that's the position that they take with the people who are in their lives. They continue into verse 49, But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And that, of course, can say a lot for them to say this. That can say a lot. It could say that they are the ones who failed to teach the law correctly. It could be the case. They would probably not agree with that. But Jesus was definitely teaching the law. And he was teaching the law in a way that was consistent with the way that God gave it, which was to state that there would be no way that a person could live in complete obedience to the law. But the rulers believed that there was a way. They believed that you could do it. Jesus taught the law to the extent that his disciples finally asked him, Who then can be saved? And he said to them, It is written, With men this is impossible. But with the rulers, they would say, No, that's not right. It is possible. And to say that a person does not know the law and is accursed, that means that if they are failing to live in obedience to the Mosaic law as God requires, then the penalty for that is to be cursed by God. That's what the law declares. But the rulers themselves, they do not know the law as they should, as Jesus proclaimed to them. In the temple, in the previous message, I explained that Jesus said, you do not obey the law. Therefore, by definition, according to the law, you will be accursed. You will be cursed by God. In verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Well, obviously, they don't care. They don't care about that. They just want him dead. They don't care why or how. Just kill him. That's their position. In verse 52, they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. They don't even respond appropriately 
to Nicodemus, who raises the issue that they should not be passing judgment against Jesus until after a formal, appropriate trial. And they ignore him. They ignore Nicodemus and say this, which is totally absurd, because Jonah was from Galilee. Hosea, Natham, how about Elijah? And Elisha, they were from Galilee. They were considered to be prophets. Clearly, these guys don't know the law. They don't know the law themselves, otherwise they would know that. And when they assert themselves as being the rulers who define what a person can believe and what a person cannot believe, it is clear that these people have rejected Jesus and there is no solution to this issue. There will be no peace between Jesus and the rulers there in Jerusalem. They are ruling according to the law and they have confessed that they do not know the law by stating that no prophet has ever come out of Galilee. They have confessed that they do not know the law. Jesus is teaching the law and he is teaching the law correctly, there is no opportunity for the rulers and Jesus to come to an agreement when they take this position. And I will continue with this in the next program. Thank you for listening. This is the 34th program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I spoke about two parts in John chapter 7. The first part that I spoke about was Jesus making a public declaration that he was the solution for the problem between man and God, that he would be the one to provide the Holy Spirit to be restored back to humanity. And the second part that I spoke about was the religious rulers testifying that they did not know the law. By making a mistake in their conversation with Nicodemus, they publicly confessed that they could not have an agreement with Jesus because they themselves did not know the law. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.